Well, let's begin. We're going to jump into session four, and uh, we're going to talk about how to end discipline times well, Um, ending discipline times with impact. We've been talking about correction, and correction is one tool that we use for changing the heart. But what I have found is it's, it's often difficult to get the most out of it. Um, my experience has been that most people don't really have a positive experience with, with correction. Some of the barriers to this that I find that are common are just uh, frustration and anger and uh, resistance. You know, as we talked about early on, there's the resistance that we meet from our kids and so it just seems like it's, the whole thing just kind of shuts down. And, and, and we always we, we leave with just this sense that somehow we didn't really finish well. Um, there might be lingering tension in a relationship. Um, there might, you know, the child might continue to be um, doing the wrong thing or having the wrong attitude. Some kids are really sensitive and it might just you know, devastate them and it creates distance in the relationship. I mean, there's just all kinds of variables, but um, the bottom line is kids have a hard time processing uh, disappointment and um, and continual correction, which is part of our job as parents, continual correction wears on a relationship. I mean, just think about it. Uh, you know, if if you're constantly, someone's always addressing what you're doing wrong, <laughs> it just wears you out. And um, sometimes, though, the child is ready to restore, even after a time of discipline, <laughs> but I've still got issues. I'm still kind of ticked off about what happened, or I'm still kind of frustrated, or maybe I'm just discouraged because we're still having the same problem and it's not getting better. And so I might be wrestling in my own heart with stuff uh, that the child doesn't even know about, And it just makes it really hard to restore the kind of closeness that all of us want with our children. And it makes it hard to end uh, discipline times constructively. And so what I want to encourage you to do is is not think of discipline uh, simply in terms of consequences. But, But think of it as a process. Think of it as discipline is just a way to get the child's attention. And then from there, you're going to continue on with, with teaching and, and with your example and, and this long-term plan that we've been talking about. And the real uh, benefit to ending or, or key to ending discipline times well is what we call a positive conclusion. Now, a positive conclusion is basically just a discussion that you have with your child at the end of a time of discipline. And it's, it basically does this. It clarifies the offense. Okay, It helps them understand this is what you did that was wrong. It also helps to make a plan for next time. Um, as we wrapped up last session, we talked about the positive side of training and how you practice doing the right thing. That is a real key in discipline times because a lot of times... Um, it's just a, it's a time where there's just a lot of emotions flying around and uh, loud voices and, and all kinds of crazy things can go on. And, and the child goes away remembering all of that, but they don't really remember how to change or, or feel like you believe they can change. And so you offer encouragement for them to do the right thing. Now here's, um, we're going to, we're going to jump into, um, 
what it looks like here in just a second. But a couple more things I want to point out is that if you learn to do this well, it offers a vision of hope really for your kids. Um, it helps them see that um, that they can have a positive future. There's a lot of kids today that just do not believe that they can change. They don't believe that they can be lovable, that, that they'll be accepted. Um, they're really, they don't have what I would call a sense of secure love. Uh, they know that you love them. I mean, you're your mom, your dad, you're supposed to love them. Uh, but they don't have a sense of secure love. And I think a big reason is because we don't know how to end discipline times well. And by the way, this is a valuable tool for adults, not just for kids. And I'm going to suggest to you that the model that this is based upon is the way that God deals with us. You think about how God deals with you and and your failures and, and your disobedience and, and the way God deals with you. And I'll tell you, he doesn't, he's not standing up there with a big bat ready to just whack you. He's not angry with you. He's not, you know, a lot of these things that we have in our mind, the Bible's very clear. He, that's not the way God looks at us. Um, he's training us. He's teaching us. He's loving us. He, he knows how to be just as gentle as possible, but as firm as necessary. And we, he just has that perfect blend and balance. And we need to be able to communicate this same kind of approach to our children because it, it really, what it does is it plants in their minds some early concepts of God. And, and we want to represent the Lord well. It develops habits in their lives. Habits in terms of how they think, how they talk, and how they act. But you have to make sure your heart is ready for this. Now, I'm going to challenge you to be mature. Be grown up about this. Sometimes as parents, we get, we get so personally offended at how our kids are acting and behaving. Rather than being mature and realizing... Of course they're going to behave that way. That's God said ahead of time. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. I mean, they come out of the womb that way. That's just, for all of the wonderful blessing that children are, for lots of wonderful reasons, there's also things that just, it can, it can be hard. And we just, sometimes I think we resent that instead of just accepting it. It's the way it is. And so we have to make sure that our heart is ready for this and be willing to express the love and acceptance and forgiveness and grace that God extends to us. Now, the positive conclusion is the difference between discipline and punishment. And really, um, I think sometimes people use those terms interchangeably. I, don't, I find it more helpful to, to distinguish between the two, as I've been explaining this morning with you guys. I think punishment um, has in mind um, some, some other kinds of things. Um, I, don't, I think it tends to be negative. Discipline is positive. Punishment focuses on the past misdeeds. Um, discipline focuses on the future, good deeds, the right way to, to live. And um, so anyway, uh, we're going to talk about what this looks like now, okay? There's three questions and a statement. The positive conclusion begins like this. What did you do wrong? Now, it's not the voice of a police officer saying, what did you do wrong? <laughs> Hands up against the car. <laughs> Hands up against your quad runner. Uh, you, you just... Um, you ask the question in just a simple, um, gentle, but matter-of-fact way. I will often tell my kids, I'll say, honey, come here. Now, let's talk, because they will say, we've, we've done the break, and they say, okay, daddy, I'm ready to talk about it. And I will say, all right, let's, let's talk about what you've learned. What did you do wrong? And they will say, 
I don't know. He said, well, let's talk about this. He said, I can help you if you need to know, but I want you to think about it. You hit your sister. Okay? And, uh, and so after a little bit of reminder and stuff, they'll start to get in the routine of things. So when you ask the question, they'll know. Okay, I, I hit my sister. Okay, that's good. And as I said before, um, we're, we're, the purpose of this question is to teach the child to take responsibility for the problem. They're part of the problem. No excuses, no blame shifting. The purpose is to teach them to take responsibility. Again, sibling conflict is like practice marriage. It's not that we want our kids to grow up and fight in their marriages, but the fact is they're going to be married to another person who has a sinful heart just like they do, and conflict is inevitable. I don't care how well compatible you may like to think you are, you still are, you know, selfish and proud and and you're getting, there's going to be conflict. The question is how do you deal with that conflict? And one of the biggest problems that I see today in marriage counseling is people don't know how to handle conflict. They don't know how to resolve conflict. And it's because they're always looking at the other person and don't you know our sin always looks worse than the other person. And um we need to learn to own it and our own part of the problem, no excuses. And so we ask, what do you do? What did you do wrong? And if they say, I don't know, don't rob them of the benefit of confession. It's important that they learn to confess what they did wrong. Confess means to say the same thing, to agree with. In other words, God says it's wrong, I say it's wrong. And, and they learn to know. And, and we've got to get away from this victim mentality that just so... Uh, dominates in our culture and our thinking um it's always you know well it's my italian heritage <laughs> it's my dysfunctional upbringing it's my this that and the other can we just be honest who hasn't had a dysfunctional upbringing i mean really this is a fallen world we live in and i'm not trivializing it don't misunderstand i understand that i mean i i had a dysfunctional upbringing but um we, we, do you think we're going to be able to stand before the Lord someday and cop out? Say, well, you know, it was the parents you gave me, Lord. I mean, you, <laughs> you can't do that. You can't do that. God's going to hold each one of us to account uh, for him. Now, confession is a spiritual issue. And this is really what, why we go through this process in the positive conclusion and um confession teaches a number of things first of all it teaches right from wrong it uh, gives our kids a moral standard um and boy can you see the relevance of this today in a culture of so-called tolerance tolerance of course of everything except for absolute truth and real right and wrong and you know anything like that an actual moral standard um, that's the only thing the world is not tolerant of. But uh, this this process will teach that. It also contributes to something else very significant. It contributes to a clear conscience. You know how many people are walking around today just under this weight of a, of a guilty conscience because they've, they've lived lives that are just self-centered and, and ungodly and they know it. And the Bible says that our conscience either accuses us or excuses us, Romans 2. And God hardwired this into you. Even if you never went to church in your life, you know right from wrong because God made you that way. He put it in you. 
And, and the Romans 1 talks a lot about how people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You have to push God out of your mind in order to sin, in order to live a life apart from God. You have to work hard. You have to fight God till your dying breath because he is in pursuit of you. He, want, he created you for that relationship because he loves you. And part of this, what did you do wrong? It's, it's an opportunity. And we see it even in the Garden of Eden. God went to Adam and Eve. Do you think God really didn't know Adam and Eve were hiding behind that bush? I mean, <laughs> where are you guys? He was, why did he ask the question, where are you? He was simply giving them the opportunity to come clean, to come out in the open and say, here's what we did. And, and rather than just jumping on and telling your kids what they did wrong, ask them after they've gone through the break and they've kind of worked through things in their heart, say, okay, now, what did you do wrong? And uh, it's our job as a parent to train up our kids in the way sh they should go. Not the way they naturally go, the way they should go. And uh, healthy relationships depend on this principle throughout life. Now, the second question is, why was that wrong? Now, the purpose of this question, the first question, the purpose was to encourage them to take responsibility the purpose of this question is to help them address heart issues directly. In other words, we're not just trying to, to modify their behavior. You know, if you do good, I'll give you a cookie. If you do your homework, you can watch a movie. If you, I mean, we always are trying to modify their behavior. But in, inadvertently, what we do is we teach them image management. We do raise them to, be, to look good on the outside. Would you... <laughs> Jesus reserved some of his most uh, scathing words to people who looked good on the outside. Do you remember? The Pharisees. I mean, he really let them have it. He said, you know, you guys are like whitewashed sepulchers. You're all white and clean on the outside, but inside you're just like dead man's bones. And he was looking at the heart. And God has always looked at the heart. And Children need to see how their behavior is tied to bigger issues. Um, and the reason, of course, is because what we believe determines how we live. Did you know that? What you think, what you believe in your heart is going to work its way out into your behavior. If your sister hits you and you decide, I'm going to hit her back, and dad comes along and says, why did you do that? Because she deserved it. <laughs> well... Okay, but is that true? Is that, is that right thinking? That, that if someone does something wrong to me, then they deserve for me to do something wrong back to them? Well, when you go through this process, it will, believe me, you will see right away what's going on in your kids' hearts. It'll start to expose the wrong thinking, the thinking errors. And it's really important um, that you see how their behavior is tied to bigger issues. A good example is lying. Some of you may have a problem with kids lying and deception. And one of the books that we have back there is uh, Good and Angry. And there's a chapter on lying. And I, to me, it's worth the price of the book because uh, Dr. Transkan unpacks this whole thing. And he says, you know, there's three basic qualities that a child who lies lacks. One of them is responsibility, another is self-control, and another is contentment. 
because kids lie for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes they're afraid of you know consequences. Sometimes we've trained them to be that way because we overreact all the time. I mean, every little thing is just a big disaster. And so pretty soon they stop just, I'm just not going to say anything or I'm going to say what they want to hear. And, and they begin to be deceptive and manipulative that way. But one thing that you can do instead of getting so puzzled and perplexed by lying, think this through. If you teach them to be responsible, then they won't find themselves in embarrassing situations where they're shown to be irresponsible. And so now they have to cover it up. You ever thought about that? Sometimes people lie because they haven't been wise. They haven't been responsible. And now they're embarrassed. And so they've got to try to cover it up. Some kids lie because of a lack of self-control. I mean, they just stuff comes out before they even think. So rather than trying to worry too much about correcting lying, teach them self-control in everyday life. Train them to control their bodies, control their words, control the way they behave. Teach them self-control. Use the break and the positive conclusion and talk a lot about self-control. As they learn to have self-control, now when they're tempted to blurt out something that's not true, they learn to think. They learn to stop. They learn to, they learn to control their tongue. Uh, teach them contentment. A lot of times kids are so ungrateful and so discontent with what they have or, or with who they are, the way they are. Maybe they, they lack some abilities that other kids have, but, but they want to be strong. They want to be thought of. Uh, they want to be popular. They want people to think more highly of them. And so they'll make up stories and they'll tell lies. And, and, and rather than just learning to um, accept themselves and see themselves from God's point of view and realize they're loved and accepted and they're blessed, and they can be thankful, they can be content, and they don't have to make up stories. So a couple of just, uh, that's fascinating to me. I never thought of lying in that way. Um, but uh, you think it through, and you may discover that um, there's some helpful information there to help your children. Um, now, one of the things that we also can do at this point when we ask why was that wrong is it's an opportunity to establish family rules and boundaries and, and values. Um, we have rules in our family. For example, we don't hit each other. But it's, it's not that we write that up as a rule. There's really a value behind that rule. Um, what would the value be? What's, what, what's the value of not hitting each other? Well, the value, the character trait would be kindness. That's unkind. What was what, what did you do wrong? I hit my sister. Why is it wrong? Because it's unkind. And in the Sine family, we're kind toward others. What did you do wrong? Well, I lied. Well, why is that wrong? Well, because we need to be trustworthy. I want to be honest. It's, I want to be trustworthy in our family. We value honesty, you see. And so when you ask this question, what you start to do is it gives you an opportunity to... to to pass on to your kids these good values, these good character traits that, that you want them to have. And um, I recommend three or four basic rules okay, in family life. And this will cover the whole gamut. You don't have to have 21 rules of this house. <laughs> we have that poster, by the way. It's a great poster. There's a lot of great things in there. And I'm not, there's nothing wrong with it. But sometimes with little kids, you just need to keep it short and sweet. And here's the basic rules. Number one, be kind. Number two, show respect. Number three, obey. And number four, honor. Now, I've already described honor to you, treating people special, doing more than expected, having a good attitude. 
children are told to obey their parents to honor their father and mother. That's the basic job description of a child, is to obey and honor. The basic job description for parents is to do what? To teach and to train. That's it. That's all the Bible says about those roles. Now, there's a few here that I think are very, just so common in family life. The kindness, you're dealing with sibling rivalry. Okay, well, what are you doing wrong? Well, I was unkind. Okay, very good. That's it. And, and again, you're laying a track in their minds. Pretty soon they start to think differently. They start to realize, I'm not going to hit her back because I know that I'm going to end up sitting in a break and then I'm going to have to talk through it and I have to talk about how I was unkind or worse. There may be other consequences. And you know what? Maybe I should just stop myself here and go get help. Or maybe I can go do something different. Or maybe I can try to just use my words in a gentle way. I mean, they start to learn to think this through. Uh, same with respect, you know, your kids get old enough, they start having opinions of their own, don't they? They want to tell you about it, but they do it in a disrespectful way. I've got no problem if my 12-year-old thinks that a decision I made was wrong or unfair, but what I do care about is the way he tells me. I care about the way he talks to me because he needs to have respect for authority. And so, same with obedience. It's okay if you don't agree, but we're still going to do this. This is a decision I make. You need to do what I say right away without being reminded. And obedience is 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 one of the rules that we have. But there's values in these rules, um, and and you're just you're laying a track in their mind. It's eventually going to play back. If you don't believe me, just think about the first time <laughs> you said something, and all of a sudden you went, "Oh my gosh, I'm my mother. I just <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. I sound just like my mother." And you know whether you realize it or not, your mother laid a track in your mind. There's things that play back, and that those can be good things. They can be bad things. Uh, we want to make sure. I'm just suggesting that this is one of those good tracks we want to lay. Now, the third question is, what are you going to do differently next time? Now, the purpose for this question is it helps your child understand and learn the right action to take in a similar situation in the future. Okay? It, it helps them understand and learn the right action to take in a similar situation in the future. Let me ask you, um, is their sister going to bug them again tomorrow? What about five minutes from now? I mean, there's going to be stuff that comes up again, and you know that it's going to come up again. And what they need to understand and learn to anticipate is that next time their sister or brother does something wrong, next time mom tells me I can't go to that party, next time, you know, whatever you're dealing with, I don't care what the age is, there's going to be a next time. And they need to learn to think ahead and, and take the right action in a similar situation. It does very little good as parents for us to always go around correcting them for the wrong thing and never tell them how to do what's right. Never tell them what the right action is and, and, and help them know how to uh, behave properly. And so it helps you to think and deal with future challenges. Um, a lot of times... Um, Kids can be very impulsive. They get overwhelmed by emotions. Something happens, and so often, especially with young kids, but I, I would say this even with teens, um, God seems to just have built into kids a built-in sense of justice. And if something's not fair, I mean, there are just few things that will get a kid fired up quicker than if, if it's not fair. <laughs> and so they get impulsive and they start reacting. You know, if they're being teased, if some, if you have more than one child, probably one of them 
it tends toward being antagonistic. They get some sick pleasure watching the other kid, <laughs> watching their brother or sister get angry. And and I just it's just it is a sick thing. And um but it's very, very common. And so you've got you know, I have I have one daughter that that uh tends to to be that way. Um struggle with that sometimes. I have another one that, that tends to she doesn't struggle with that, but she struggles with losing control emotionally. I mean, she just all of a sudden, uh, just a very, you know, gentle-natured thing, but if you push her buttons long enough, all of a sudden she doesn't know how to cope with it. It's like, you know, she kind of loses it. <laughs> and, you know, that's not right either. That's just as wrong as the person doing the button pushing. And so this is when we go through this positive conclusion and they start going, well, she did this. Yeah, but you did that. I say, wait a minute. You sit over here, take a break. You sit over here. Well, I'll talk to you in a minute. I'm going to talk with you first. And then we go back and forth like this and we go through this process and they learn to realize, you know, yeah, it's wrong that my sister or my brother did that to me, but it doesn't give me an excuse to respond that way. A lot of times I will, I will ask them, okay, what can you do differently next time? Well, they don't know sometimes. Maybe I have to tell them. And like in that scenario, there's, there's at least three things that I can think of off the top of my head, and we talk about it a lot in family life. Number one, you can walk away. I mean, that's a viable option. There's, is there going to be people that annoy you in life? What are you going to do? Are you, you know, as an adult, are you just going to blow up? I know some who do. And they throw a three-year-old tantrum as a grown-up in a grown-up body. Because they've been doing it all their life. And, and kids go, oh, it's just a phase. You know, parents say, it's just a phase. He'll come through it. No, he won't. Kids do not grow out of that. They grow into it. They get more adept at it. A three-year-old who throws tantrums becomes a 13-year-old who throws tantrums, who becomes a 23-year-old throwing tantrums. And pretty soon, you've got this man with a family, and he's just a rageaholic, you know, always throwing tantrums. And, you know... It starts right here. You teach them. You can just walk away sometimes. Now, other times, walking away isn't the way to solve the problem. Other times, they need to use their words. They need to stand up and say, hey, you know what? It's not okay for you to hit me. Please do not do that. I don't want you to hit me like that. It hurts. And they, and they use their words and they talk and they be confident and they stand on their feet and, and they, they talk it out. Or maybe, maybe uh, you know, they... They become peacemakers. They become problem solvers. Maybe they say, you know what? I, you know, I know that, that, that you're playing with that toy right now, but when you're done, could you tell me? Because I'd like to play with it. Instead of just saying, that's not fair. Give me a turn. You know, you just, hey, will you please tell me when you're done so I can play with it? You know, and, and you may be thinking, ah, oh, this isn't very realistic. I mean, my kids aren't going to do this. Well, only because you haven't trained them to. If you persevere and, and go through and use these tools, you can train them to learn to talk things out. And, and you say, well, what if that doesn't work? And sometimes my kids say, well, I already tried that, Daddy. I tried walking away and it didn't work. She kept bugging me. Or I, I tried asking her to stop and she didn't stop. Well, okay. Then what's something else you could do? Well, I don't know. Well, you have a mom and a dad. You can come and ask for help. Yeah, but then you'll just say, I'm tattling. Well, no, not necessarily. 
Tattling is when you seem to get pleasure out of watching someone else get in trouble. That's different. But if you come to me with a legitimate concern, an honest, a real problem, and you say, Daddy, here's what, here's what happened. Here's what I did. I'm trying to talk it out like you've told me. I'm trying to solve the problem. I tried to walk away. You come to me and you tell me everything you've tried to do that I've taught you. If it's not working, Daddy will take care of it. And if indeed they have done everything they ought to do, then guess who's going to be the one being disciplined? It's going to be that other child who needs the discipline. But if you get sucked into the battle and you start responding now in wrong ways, guess what? Now I have two daughters who need to be disciplined. And I just tell them, that's not very wise. You can be wise. You can learn how to solve problems because that's part of life. There's going to be all kinds of people that bother you. <laughs> that's, just, that's just part of life. And, and so the last thing is go ahead and try again. And the purpose of this statement, and it's not a question, it is a statement. The purpose is to give them the confidence and the affirmation to move forward and to grow. This is growing up. This is maturity. This is responsibility. When a child starts realizing what's going on in these relationships and they start changing their behavior and doing what's right, they're growing up. And I love the way that God deals with us when we make mistakes. This is one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. You remember the story of the woman who'd been caught in adultery? And they brought her to Jesus and they threw her down at Jesus' feet and they said, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus, of course, saw their hearts and what they were up to. And he um, stooped down and began to write in the dirt. And people speculate about what he might have written. Um, I have some ideas of what it might have been. Uh, but anyway, the bottom line was, is he said, okay, whoever's without sin among you, you cast the first stone. And one by one, the rocks just began to drop and they sort of slithered away, right? But I, here's what I love about this story. Jesus looked at that woman and very tenderly, very compassionately, he wasn't sweeping her sin under the rug. I mean, she'd been humiliated. It was obvious that what she'd done uh, was wrong. And, um, but he didn't, he, that's not the way he approached it. Um, he saw her heart. He saw that she was a broken woman, that there, she regretted what she did. And, and he just looked at her and he said, woman, where are thine accusers? She said, no man, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he didn't make it. There was no compromise. I mean, he said, don't keep doing this. But I forgive you. And, and I love that picture because I bet she just never felt more loved in her whole life. I bet she'd never experienced that kind of love, especially from a man. And I think that we give our children a real gift in the positive conclusion when we go through this process, we help them understand what's going wrong. We, we, we help them understand why it's wrong. We, we help them understand a, a positive direction that they can begin to move in. And then we give them a pat on the back and we say, go for it. You can do it, honey. I believe in you. Go try again. Well, but daddy, what if this happens? That's okay. We're going to work at this. I'm going to watch. Sometimes I watch from a distance. I'll tell them, okay, go back in there and try again. But she's just going to say no again. No, no, let me watch. You go in and I want you just to talk to her the way that I've just told you how to do it. Go try it. And then come and report back and we'll talk about it. Have a little debriefing. And you'll go back. And, well, this is what happened. This is what she said. Okay, okay, let's try it again. 
Go back in and try it this way. And I work through it with them. They learn how to be problem solvers. They learn how to be peacemakers. They learn that failure isn't fatal. And that's a message that we all need. We need to understand failure isn't fatal. And you know, the Bible calls one of the titles given to Satan as he's the accuser of the brethren. And yet the scripture says for believers, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet some of us walk around with a big burden, feeling this weight of condemnation. And it's not from the Lord. It's Satan. He's lying to you. And you need to remember the truth, believe the truth, walk in the truth. And remember, he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I, that's where it's rooted in the, in the scripture. Now, there's a... Um, Another thing that you need to understand, and it has to do with the will, we have to choose to do the right thing. Feelings have nothing to do with it. So often we want to wait until we feel like doing what's right. But love is a decision. Love is a choice. And you have to, you have to decide to love. You have to choose to do it, to do what's right, to love God, to love other people. And, and it's, it's not until we do the right thing that the heart begins to change. And that's why this is a venture in faith. We want to wait for God to somehow do something inside of us to make us feel like doing it. And he says, it doesn't work that way. I'm just going to tell you who I am and what I can do. And then you're going to have to decide whether or not you're going to trust and obey, do what I say. Jesus said one time to his disciples, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? <laughs> and this is a question that I think all of us probably struggle with, right? You know, we, we know what God says. But he says, no longer is the question, what do I do? But will I do it? Will I do it? And, and uh, this is something that I've just observed over the years is that when I do the right thing, God begins to affirm it by his spirit in my heart. He says, boy, good job, Johnny. Keep going. That's the right thing to do. Even if it means I'm suffering in some way, even if the decision I've made isn't well received by others. Even if there's some sort of persecution or, you know, I just need to know that I'm pleasing the Lord. That's what I need to know. And as long as I know that, then I'm okay. And I can move forward with, with a sense of hope, with a sense of perseverance and anticipating good things. Now there's kind of a triangle here that I've, I've created that I want you to see at just a glance, this picture of everything we've been talking about. First of all, uh, the child has done the wrong thing. This is that triangle of discipline. The child's done the wrong thing. Step two is you send them to a break. Or, you know, what other form of discipline you may be using. Uh, we've talked about a lot of them, but, but for the sake of illustration, you've sent them to a break. They return ready to talk about it. They've calmed down. They've admit what they've done wrong. They're, they're willing to talk about it and do what's right. And that's where you go through these three questions in a statement. What did you do wrong? Why is it wrong? What are you going to do different next time? And then, okay, let's try again. And they practice. The last step is they practice doing the right thing. Now, look at what happens. This is where we see a change of heart. And that's the purpose of this process. And I hope you see where it's, it's rooted in Scripture and why it works. I want to say one more uh, cover one more area before I wrap up and it is how this applies with teenagers because I understand that 
teenagers are kind of a different animal. <laughs> I mean, there's some unique challenges that come with, with the teen years, and I understand that. Um, one of the things that this does is it fosters a sense of cooperation and teamwork. When you can begin to dialogue with your teens about and go through this process that I've outlined for you this morning, um, it, it helps them understand that they can grow, that they're in process, that, that you're working together with them. Um, it's a non-authoritarian approach. Sometimes we just, we out-muscle them, you know? They start resisting us and we're not sure what to do, so we crank it up a little bit and we, we just kind of intimidate them into doing what, what they need to do. And we're not willing to listen and dialogue. Uh, it's important that you dialogue, not endlessly, not to get out of obedience, but be willing to listen. And, um, and you can be authoritative without being authoritarian. Do you understand the difference? Don't be a tyrant dictator in the home. Uh, you, want to, you want to have authority, but, but make sure you're listening and you're working together with them and, and just be patient in the process. Your teens are going to be testing out those ideas, testing out those values. Um, how many parents have raised their kids in the church all their life only to see them turn 18 and just kind of go off the deep end? It's like, good grief, what happened? They've been to church all their lives. Well, the problem is there's something going on in the heart that, that maybe you weren't aware of or didn't pay attention to, and, and you weren't willing to let them test out some values and question and, and, and work through some things. And it's just, it's just important um, that you don't be defensive and threatened all the time as a parent. I think it, it, teens can be intimidating, and it, it's very threatening for a parent because you feel like, you know, I failed at everything, and now everything I poured into them, they're just kind of spitting out, and, and, you know, and so you get into this defensive mode. But it really can damage the relationship. You have to be careful. You can win an argument but lose a relationship. Did you know that? And, and it's important. It's, again, it's not just enough to be right. You have to be wise. And, and it's, it, I know that it can be really, really tough. It's, it's very common for parents to say to me, my, my teen won't talk. And then I sit down with their, their teenager, and you know what they say? My parents won't listen. And this shouldn't be a surprise. I'm going to give you three tips. Jot this down in your margin. Three tips in talking with your teenagers. Number one, learn to start. Learn to start. This gets back to what I alluded to earlier today. Consider the timing. Consider your tone. How do you talk to them? Learn how to talk to them in a way that doesn't put them on the defensive. And uh, again, you can be firm when necessary. You don't have to be harsh, but learn to talk to them. Learn how to start. Learn when to sit down and, and when to maybe wait a little bit and be patient. You also need to learn how to stop. <laughs> and this is where it's really hard as a parent is we can be going on and on in our lecture and we, we're, we're, not, we're not willing to, to keep it short and to the point. And um, that's something that I'll probably forever struggle with because that's what I do all the time is teach. That's my job is I'm teaching all the time. <laughs> Sermons. It's hard for me not to be in sermon mode when I'm with my kids. And God bless them. I pray for God to cover my multitude of sins. And over the years, they're just having to endure a lot with me. But uh, then the third thing is learn to listen. Learn to listen. It doesn't mean that uh, you're always going to agree, but at least it'll foster some understanding. You've got to learn to listen. That's one of the things that I, to be honest with you, I just, 
I struggle so much with this. And I just tell my kids and my wife, I say, you know what? I am sorry. I need to be a better listener. And I'm working on that. Daddy's going to be working on that. Um, and you can let me know gently and respectfully. You know, it's okay for you to let me know. Dad, I just need you to listen. Okay, that's right. That's the thing I don't do very well. <laughs> but since you brought it up, I think I'll try, you know. And sometimes, because I just, I have a blind spot in that area. And it's it's just, it's just tough for me. And um, so, and then just pray and persevere, you know. God will breathe life into your work over time. I think that there's one of the major themes in all of Scripture is just perseverance. You know, run with endurance the race that is set before you. And keep your eyes fixed on on the Lord and he'll, he'll help you to the finish line. I, I would say too with teens, look for ways. I'm going to use a phrase that I heard one time that I really liked and it was called tying strings of fellowship. Look for ways to to connect with your kids, to tie strings of fellowship. Find, kind of get into their world. Find out what they enjoy and do it with them. And, 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 and find a way to, to just connect with them in a way that is meaningful for them. It, it may not be for you, but if it is for them, it'll be worth it. And by going through this positive conclusion, it helps us as parents to see the problem as the problem and not the child as the problem. I think a lot of parents, um, they just look at their kids as a problem. And, and, you know, I tell parents all the time, don't forget to enjoy your kids. Really. We've got a short window of time. And the Bible says children are a blessing from the Lord. They are a heritage from the Lord. And, and it's just a precious small window of time that we get to have with our children. Don't miss it. Redeem the time. Enjoy your time with your kids. There are things at every age and stage that I love about my kids. And there are things at every age and stage that I don't love about my kids. <laughs> you know, there's those challenges that are just really hard. Uh, but, but don't, you want to, just don't forget to enjoy them. And this is a heart-based approach to discipline. It's going to require time. It's going to require energy, creativity, thoughtfulness, all these things. You're going to have to have an internal perspective. But you know what? It's worth it. Um, I came across something that I liked. If you want to grow an oak, a sturdy oak, it'll take about 100 years. A squash will only take a few months. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's good to keep this in mind as a parent so that we do take the long view. Sometimes we just, we, we've got to remember that... Um, the most meaningful things, the most meaningful accomplishments in life take a lot of sacrifice, a lot of discipline, a lot of, a lot of patience. So what is your story? I don't know your story. I know my story. I was sharing with the ladies up here during the break a little bit about it. They asked some questions about it. But I know anytime I come to a church and I do a conference like this or a seminar like this, I know that people come through the door and they're weary, exhausted, discouraged, frustrated, confused, to one degree or another. I mean, it's in the context of family life that God teaches us how to love, how to be humble, how to trust Him, how to serve others. How do you learn to love? God says, well, how about I put you with someone hard to love? Oh, Great. Okay. <laughs> That's not exactly what I had in mind. But you know what? It's it's true for all of us because 
we all are self-centered. And there's going to be things that it's just, you know, it's going to be hard. Family life can be messy. Marriage can be messy. Now, I don't think that, it, that it's God's uh, intention that, it, that that define your life, define your relationships. But um, that, is, that is part of the process. And some of you may be feeling like it's too late. You know, oftentimes um, I will meet with people and, and they're just so brokenhearted because they hear this stuff and they go, I wish I would have known this 10 years ago. Wish I would have known this 20 years ago. I mean, it's, it's like, man, is it too late for me? Can I just encourage you with this, this truth? God can change people at any age. Did you know that? God can change people at any age. And I appreciate the well-meaning educators out there and people who study early childhood development, and I've read all those books too, and, and I understand. I understand that there are certain stages of development that, you know, once they're gone, they're gone, you know, and... and from just man's perspective, it seems like, you know, well, that opportunity's lost. But anytime you take God out of the formula, it gets kind of hopeless. And I just want to encourage you guys to keep in mind, I'm not looking at this from a secular point of view. I'm not looking at this from man's point of view at all. I'm challenging you to look at it from God's point of view, so from an eternal perspective, and realize God can change people at any age. You know, my mother uh, has learned this. But she would tell you, she's told me, she says, Johnny, you know, it took, it took the Lord 53 years to get a hold of me. But she is a trophy of grace. I mean, she walks three feet off the ground in my book. It's incredible what God's done in her life. But that woman has had a hard, hard life. And, and she left home when she was 14. <laughs> and it's, I won't tell you her story, but I'm telling you, it is... It is an incredible story. And it just reminds me of God's sovereignty and God's grace and mercy that he just, he just can grab us at any point along the way and pick us up and pull us out of all the muck and the mire and, and set our feet on the right track. It just takes a humble, willing heart. You know, I tell people all the time also that, you know, God doesn't have anything but a plan A. He only has plan A. You say, but John, what if I've drifted from the plan? Well, he doesn't change the plan. He changes you. He says, okay, we're going to go back to plan A. This is the way family life works. I gave it to you in my word, and you drifted from it, but let's just go right back to it. This is the way to trust me. This is how to love and honor me. This is how to love others well. And he begins to show us those principles in the word that make for healthy relationships. Principles like love and submission and forgiveness and grace. All of these things that all of us need. And it's in the Bible. So practical. So wonderful. So powerful. I was raised by a single mom. I just sometimes have to pinch myself. I'm going, unbelievable. God indeed has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I mean, have you ever thought that of yourself? You just wonder, I cannot believe I'm here. And I, and I travel around the country teaching people how to parent their kids effectively. And I, as I start out in the seminar saying, I'm the first to say, I'm not an expert. I'm not up here because I'm the expert. I, I'm here just by the grace of God. And, and I feel like I have something wonderful to share, but only because God's wonderful. And I'm an ambassador for Christ. That's it. 
I've got nothing to offer you other than what he's already said and done. And I'm just encouraging you to do in the same way what I've had to do. And that is, I've had to come to Christ and trust him and follow him. I don't do it perfectly, but I do it faithfully. My wife doesn't do it perfectly, but she's faithful. My kids are growing up seeing a mom and a dad who love each other, who love God and who love them. And they know that we don't love perfectly, but they know we love. And, and that's, I just believe what the Bible says, love never fails. And that's where I'm putting all my eggs in that basket right there. And I also believe that what the enemy is intended for evil, God intends for good. Um, and, and we say these things and we become almost sort of, um, you know, cavalier about it. We say, God works all things together for good to those who love him, those who call the according to his purpose. And we just throw this stuff around, you know, like it's just common knowledge. But I, my question is, do you know this? Do you know this by experience that God works all things together for good? What about things that come down the, the pike that you didn't count on? You know, in my life, and, and I, I don't claim to have had the hardest life by any stretch, um, but five years ago when I was told that I had leukemia, and I've shared that story with some of you before, but I was diagnosed with cancer at 34 years old. I said, Lord, are you, are you sure this is your best for me? Why me? He said, John, why not you? I hadn't thought of that. He said, John, all kinds of people suffer in life. Why not you? See, you have hope. You have me. See, our heart cries out, why? God, I need answers. And God doesn't give us answers. He gives us him. Because even if he were to give us all of the answers and spit it out for us off our printer there, it wouldn't change the fact that I need him. I need his strength. I need his grace. I need his comfort, his compassion. I need hope. All of these things that only come from knowing Christ alone. And that suffering does produce perseverance and proven character and hope, just like the Bible says. And you know, there are things that the Lord has taught me in the last five years that um, apparently I couldn't have learned any other way. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Because my roots have gone deeper. My love has grown stronger. And, and my relationship with God is so much more meaningful today because of just going through that one simple trial. And believe me, I don't think by any stretch that this is the last trial. I, I don't think that, okay, that, <laughs> I've had my quota. Uh, no more suffering in life. You know, as long as I live in a fallen world, the Lord says, you're going to have tribulation. That's one of the promises of God too. We don't like to claim that promise, but it's a promise. We are going to have tribulation. And it's in the context of family life that often we experience suffering because the relationships aren't what we hoped they would be, what they should be, what they could be. But you know what? If you draw near to the Lord, the Bible says he'll draw near to you. If you trust him, if you study and apply his word, the Bible says his word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It discerns between the thoughts and intents of the heart. And it absolutely will change your life. Because as our minds are renewed by the truth in God's word, what we believe changes the way we behave. It affects the way that we live in a very profound way. 
And when we begin to live to honor God and we stop fighting and running from God and making excuses and copping out and doing all the things that we tend to do, justifying our sin and hiding and running from God, when we come and say, Lord, I belong to you. My kids belong to you. My marriage belongs to you. How can I honor you in the way that I love and honor these people that you've put in my life? How can I be faithful? And I'll tell you something. He indeed is a savior. He's a redeemer. And I don't care what your past is. Um, God can God can turn it around. Because it's, you know, he is a redeemer. But do not make God your enemy. So often we find ourselves in these situations where we're suffering and we're going through difficulty and we, and we shake our fists at God. And, and he says, look, you're going to have an enemy. I never promised you to have peace with the world, the flesh, or the devil. I said you could have peace with me. And when you walk in my ways and when you know me personally and intimately, you'll have peace even in the midst of life's worst storms. You can be going through major trials in life, but if you know God intimately, he'll give you peace in the midst of it and he'll help you grow through it so that your character more and more reflects him. And then what happens is your life is transformed and because becomes something he can actually use to touch other people's lives. So you need to value, I'm encouraging you to value wherever you're at, whatever you're struggling with, Allow God to take you through the breaking process because he places a premium on brokenness, especially broken people. And when we learn to allow God to do that and make us the husband, the wife, the father, the mother that he's called us to be, it's incredible what he can do. It's, it's such a, a beautiful thing. And so the, the, the greatest parenting tip really that I can give you when it comes down to it is to have a relationship with your heavenly father. Don't just talk about it. Don't just go to church with a Bible under your arm. Don't just go to Bible study and lift your hands in songs of praise. There's nothing wrong with that. That ought to be part of your life. But I'm talking about a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. When you know that, when you experience that, it is absolutely incredible what he can begin to do through your life. Your life becomes a vessel that he can flow through. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But with him, we can do all things. And with that, I think I'm going to stop. I think we're right on time here at 2.30. And I'd like to close in prayer and, um, and just pray for you. And I, I just want to thank you for your attention. I hope that this has been a blessing for you and that you've learned some things along the way that could help you in your efforts to be a faithful mom, a faithful dad, and maybe even some things that just would strengthen and encourage your relationship in marriage um, and just your own walk with the Lord. So um, if you will bow your hearts with me, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name this afternoon, and we thank you that you invite us to come boldly before your throne of grace and find mercy and help in time of need. And nowhere, Lord, is it more important for us to come to you and acknowledge our need than in the area of parenting and family life. Lord, we love our children so much. Lord, we recognize that we, we fail in so many ways, but Lord, we're trusting that you didn't call us to be perfect, but just faithful. And we want to know how we can do that better. And Lord, if we have any hope of, of 
of knowing how to be rightly related to our kids and to our spouse, we need to be rightly related with you. And Lord, you've attached our love for you with our love for others. And you've said that our obedience to you is the only real hallmark of whether or not we actually love you. And we love you because you first loved us. And what a miracle, Lord, that you would pick us up in our lost condition and you would make us clean. You would forgive us and you would give us a future and a hope. What a great God you are. We thank you for that. Thank you for our children. I pray for these parents here, Lord. As I said, I don't know their stories. I don't know their hearts, but you certainly do. And you brought them here for a reason today. And I pray, Lord, that that when they go from this place, that they would go from here being encouraged to love and trust you more and to walk in your ways and to raise up their kids to do the same. Lord, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And Lord, I just pray that we would have that eternal perspective. And um, Lord, that these children would look at us as parents and say, I want to serve the God of my father. I want to know the God of my mother. I want a marriage like mommy and daddy have. Lord, I pray that that would be something that these children could say as a result of this time today. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.